0: Israel allows for a limited amount of humanitarian aid from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, with more than one million Palestinians out of their homes. It's Thursday, October 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the Red Cross on its efforts to gain access to the Israeli hostages taken by Hamas. Plus, President Biden will speak to the nation tonight on both the Hamas attacks and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. WBR and NPR will have live coverage and analysis. Also this hour, on the campaign trail in New Hampshire with Republican Nikki Haley, who's telling fellow Republicans what her campaign calls hard truths. Republicans have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. That's nothing to be proud of. And forcing American companies to disclose information about their greenhouse gas emissions. Mostly sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01, now the news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Long lines of trucks are waiting in Egypt to carry humanitarian aid into Gaza. The enclave has been under a complete Israeli blockade for nearly two weeks. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Jerusalem, shipments of food, water, and medicine are expected to cross the border tomorrow.
2: Hundreds of tons of humanitarian aid has been stuck near the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian side for more than a week. Egypt kept the border shut for security concerns, and Israel has been launching
0: airstrikes near the crossing. On Wednesday, President Biden, while on a brief trip to Tel Aviv, said he secured an agreement with Israel to allow the aid into Gaza. He later told reporters that it'll take some time to repair the roads near the border, which have been damaged by airstrikes, and get U.N. personnel in place to organize the shipments. Biden said relief supplies could arrive in Gaza as early as Friday. But the president also warned the shipments will stop if Hamas militants try to divert or steal the humanitarian aid. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem.
1: President Biden is set to deliver a rare primetime Oval Office address tonight. He'll speak about Israel's war with Hamas and Ukraine's ongoing war with Russia. NPR's Tamara Keith reports Biden is just back from a trip to Israel.
3: While in Tel Aviv, Biden met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet and pledged additional U.S. military aid.
4: I'm going to ask the United States Congress for unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. We're going to keep Iron Dome fully supplied so we can continue standing sentinel over Israeli skies, saving Israeli lives.
3: Iron Dome is Israel's air defense system. Before Israel was attacked, Biden had been planning to deliver a major address to the American people arguing for continued support for Ukraine. Now he'll make the case for both, with an eye to pressuring Congress to pass a massive aid package to help both allies defend themselves. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
1: The House of Representatives is scheduled to meet later today. There may be a fresh vote for Speaker. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan has failed twice to win election to the Post, and he lost more votes yesterday than he did on his first try. One of his supporters, Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale, says some Republicans are trying to find out what Jordan's opponents want.
5: It's a very uh, tense time for us. Tempers have been hot over the last couple of weeks, and I, I really haven't heard anyone express any real major divide that was keeping them from, from voting for Jim Jordan.
1: But some Republican lawmakers disagree. They say what they really don't like are hardball tactics used by apparent Jordan supporters. The Lawmakers say they're being harassed, and one lawmaker says she has gotten a credible death threat. Jordan has condemned the harassment. You're listening to NPR. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is holding a confirmation hearing today for President Biden's nominee to be ambassador to Egypt. Biden nominated State Department official Harold Mustafa Garg earlier this year. The committee still hasn't voted on the nominee to be ambassador to Israel, former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew. The governor of Hawaii is heading to Washington next week. He'll meet with top officials, including President Biden, and brief them on the recovery effort from the Maui wildfires. As Hawaii Public Radio's Bill Dorman reports, local officials remain focused on housing.
4: Hawaii Governor Josh Green says no evacuees who lost their homes in Lahaina will be evicted from their temporary housing. Nearly 7,000 Maui residents have been living in hotel rooms since August. More than 1,100 have moved on to other alternatives... Maui Mayor Richard Bisson says he's focusing on stable housing for the phase that comes after hotel rooms. That remains a challenge and a costly one for many families who've not only lost their homes but also their jobs. For NPR News, I'm Bill Dorman in Honolulu.
6: Former
1: President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial continues today in New York. He's accused of wrongly inflating the cost of some of his properties to get better financing deals from banks. Trump denies the allegations. He was in the courtroom yesterday, and he expressed frustration when a witness testified against him. The judge told everyone in the courtroom to stop commenting aloud if it was meant to influence testimony. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is W.B. WBWAR in okay. Boston. Massachusetts has reached a clean energy milestone. Work was completed yesterday on the first turbine for the first commercial-scale offshore wind farm in the state. WBOR's Miriam Wasser reports it's also the first in the nation.
2: The Vineyard Wind 1 project consists of 62 massive turbines near Martha's Vineyard. Completing one turbine may not seem like such a big deal, but for environmentalists and clean energy advocates, it's a big step forward. Offshore wind is a key part of Massachusetts' plan to reduce carbon emissions and generate more clean electricity. It hasn't been easy to get the industry off the ground, and Vineyard Wind in particular has faced several delays over the years. The next big milestone for the project should come later this year, when it's expected to start sending electricity into the New England grid. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: The future of gun reform in the state now lies in the hands of the Massachusetts Senate. Yesterday, House lawmakers passed a bill to strengthen the state's assault weapons ban. It also restricts gun owners from carrying in many public places. A newly added amendment makes certain exceptions for off-duty police officers carrying department-issued firearms. Senate lawmakers say they may may not take up their version of gun reform until next year. President Biden has nominated Joshua Levy to be the next U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. He's been serving in that post in an acting role since May. That's when former U.S. attorney Rachel Rollins stepped down following an ethics investigation. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey both say they're pleased with the nomination and are hoping for a quick confirmation process. A central Massachusetts museum focused on Russian icons has a new name. The Museum of Russian Icons in Clinton will now be known as the icon museum and study center. Museum officials tell the Telegram and Gazette the name change was influenced by the war in Ukraine. The museum also plans to start collecting relics from other Eastern Christian cultures. It's seven o seven.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. And Brimmer and May, a pre-K through 12 all-gender day school in historic Chestnut Hill with an open house on October 22nd and November 8th brimmer.org.
0: The Bruins begin a four-game road trip tonight as they visit the San Jose Sharks, and the Celtics will play their final exhibition game tonight as they visit the Charlotte Hornets. Mostly sunny today. It'll be in the mid to upper 60s. Mostly cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance for showers. It'll be in the 60s. It looks like rain for Saturday. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBOR. WBUR
7: supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth,
8: public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
9: And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden is set to give a rare primetime address from the Oval Office tonight, updating the American people following his 31-hour dash to Tel Aviv. His speech is another high-stakes mission to convince Congress to give billions in aid to Israel and Ukraine. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith traveled with the president on what was a turbulent
4: trip.
3: On the way home from Israel, Air Force One stopped for fuel and President Biden reached a breakthrough.
4: I want to bring you up to date, I just got off the phone with you.
3: He had spoken with Egypt's President El Sisi, securing an agreement and a rough timeline to get desperately needed food, water and medicine into Gaza.
4: Up to 20 trucks. This has been a very uh, blunt negotiation I've had.
3: It's a start and a lot could still go wrong. Roads need to be fixed and trucks might not roll until Friday, Biden said.
4: Look, I came to get something done, I got it done.
3: 24 hours into a trip that hadn't gone according to plan, Biden changed from his dark suit into a light blue casual sweater. He had news that wouldn't wait until he was back in Washington.
4: Not many people thought we could get this done. And not many people wanted me associated with failure.
3: Failure seemed like a very real possibility Tuesday afternoon. In fact, Biden said his team debated at length whether this risky trip would weigh on his presidency. Hours before he was set to depart, a deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza killed hundreds of people and sparked anger across the Middle East. Biden's trip was in doubt. President Biden's motorcade is pulling up here to Air Force One on the tarmac at Joint Base Andrews. And at this moment, there are a lot of questions about where President Biden is actually going to be going. Then, just as the plane was about to take off, a White House official appeared in the press cabin announcing that a stop in Jordan to meet with Arab leaders was off because of the explosion at the hospital. The Palestinians blamed Israel for the blast, and Israel said it absolutely wasn't them. Biden told his staff to find out more. By the time he landed in Israel, protests had broken out around the Arab world. There was no red carpet. This was a time of war. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was at the bottom of the stairs waiting for Biden. And the president went in for a hug. They drove to downtown Tel Aviv and met in a hotel ballroom fortified to do double duty as a bunker. There, Biden said he agreed with the Israeli assessment of the source of the blast.
4: Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not not you.
3: Biden had seen U.S. military intelligence convincing him a Palestinian militant group had misfired a rocket. He would later deliver some tough love to Netanyahu and his war cabinet. Still, the prime minister praised Biden for the message his presence sent to the world.
10: Your visit here is the first visit of an American president in Israel at a time of war. It is
11: deeply, deeply moving.
3: Biden met with family members of victims, survivors and first responders who described the brutal violence of the October 7th attacks. The pain, the rage, Biden said, is justified. What happened in Israel, he said, was equivalent to 15 September 11th attacks.
4: But I caution this while you feel that rage, Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes.
3: Innocent Palestinians are suffering too, he said. The rules of war must be followed, even as Israel aims to destroy the group that wreaks so much terror, Hamas. Now back at home, Biden will make a case to the American people that it is in their interest to stand with Israel through what could be a long and painful war. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
8: Even as President Biden was in Tel Aviv reaffirming the U.S.'s unwavering support for Israel and the country's right to defend itself, a veteran State Department official, Josh Paul, was drafting his resignation letter saying he cannot, quote, work in support of a set of major policy decisions, including rushing arms to one side of the conflict that I believe to be short-sighted, destructive, unjust, and contradictory to the very values we publicly espouse, unquote. For more than a decade, Paul served in the State Department. He is or was Director of Congressional and Military Affairs in the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which handles weapons transfers for the U.S. government. And Josh Paul is with us now to explain why he resigned. Mr. Paul, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
12: Thank you for having me. And just to clarify, I was uh, Director of Congressional and Public Affairs.
8: And Public Affairs.
12: Sorry. For, sorry. Thank no you for that.
8: So you make, you know, the U.S. has been arming Israel for decades. This is certainly not the first time Israel has undertaken military operations in Gaza. So why now? What's the rationale for leaving now? I mean, a diplomat speak, what was the red line that, you've, that got crossed
12: for you? Sure, thank you. Uh, look, first of all, it's an awful and tragic situation, right? And my heart really goes out to all the innocent civilians across the region who are suffering. Um, I think for the past 20 years, and in some ways for much longer, we've had a policy built on two premises. First, that the two-state solution is viable, and secondly, that the way to get there is to ensure Israel feels secure. Um, But I think the problem with that is that the way Israel has established its sense of security, uh, which is a false sense, as it turns out, uh, is by expanding checkpoints and barriers in the West Bank while propping up an undemocratic Palestinian authority, and in Gaza, by trading fire with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, you know, that horrible phrase, mowing the lawn, Mm. uh, resulting in thousands of civilian deaths over the years and in the past week alone, and making a two-state solution, uh, frankly, an impossibility. So I think for us to look at the current situation and say, the answer is as many bombs as Israel asks for, knowing that their use will lead in a direction exactly opposite to our stated policy goals, knowing the harm they will wreak on civilians, uh, seeing Israel's use of collective punishment, uh, including the cutting off of basic necessities, and encouraging the dislocation of hundreds of thousands of civilians is, you know, well, it's, it's disappointing to say the least.
8: You say that you, the I mean, you, you make a point of of, of course, decrying the atrocities that I think we all know uh, occurred. But you also say that you think that Israel's response has kind of crossed the line into collective punishment. Now, you say that you're pleased to see the efforts the administration is making to temper Israel's response. What are the what is the United States not doing that you think it should be doing right now?
12: Yeah, thank you. So, first of all, just on the Hamas attack, just to be absolutely clear, that was a monstrosity, an outrage, period, full stop, exclamation mark, no no if, ands, or buts. Um, in terms of what I think the US could be doing right now, I think, this, first of all, it's a bigger discussion than Gaza, but, but let's start with something quite straightforward, right? Earlier this year, um, the Biden administration issued a new conventional arms transfer policy, which is the policy, public policy, it's on the White House website, Uh, that guides the framework under which we authorise arms transfers. And that policy explicitly states, no arms transfer will be authorised where the United States assesses that it is more likely than not that the arms to be transferred will be used by the recipient to commit, facilitate the recipient's commission of, or to aggravate risks that the recipient will commit, genocide, crimes against humanity, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, including attacks intentionally directed against civilian objects or civilians protected as such, or other serious violations of international humanitarian or human rights law uh, it goes on so i think my first recommendation would be that this administration simply follow their own public commitments
8: so in essence i think what you're saying is that that these that that israel is exceeding the boundaries of of international law and that the us is turning a blind eye to that
12: Yes, I think that's 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 right.
8: But I have to say, in your letter, you say you knew you were going to have to make moral compromises in this job, but you would say that, your words, not mine, but you said you would stay as long as you thought you were doing more good than harm. So again, my question becomes, what is the line that got crossed for you? Because this is not the first time that these allegations about Israel's conduct have been made.
12: No, and nor is it the first time that allegations about American partners have been made. Um, and, you know, we can have a long discussion about the appropriate roles in, of civil servants in policymaking, Um, But for over a decade I've used the privilege of my position to fight for what I believe to be right. And that's included debates about arms transfers to a number of unsavory regimes. The difference here is that in all of those cases, when those within the department and the interagency with human rights concerns had done all the shaping they could, you knew the next step was for the sale to go to Congress where it would be held, debated, even voted against. But with Israel, it's a blank check from Congress. There's no appetite for debate. There's no real debate internal to the administration, and then there's no one to hand the debate off to.
8: You believe in you obviously this is a matter of conscience for you, and you've made that sort of clear, but and I don't know that the degree to which you think your expertise qualifies you to make these decisions, but what exactly do you think Israel should be doing now as this in the wake of these atrocities?
12: Yeah, so I think Israel absolutely has a right to defend itself and you know not to suffer the sort of outrageous attack that it did. I, I think there are ways to do that, um, that that don't involve dislocating a million Palestinians, that don't involve the death of thousands of civilians. Um, you know, we look at the uh, approach America took, you know, in the uh, post-9-11 context. Uh, we didn't go in and, you know, destroy Kabul. Um, we can obviously talk about the various mistakes that were made following that. Mm-hmm. But there are ways to do this. Um, and I think at the same time we have to ask, You know, we always ask, well, doesn't Israel have the right to defend itself? But we never seem to ask, well, what about the Palestinian right, you know, not to face incursions in their villages, not to be bombed from the air? Um, So I think looking at this on equal terms, we have to talk about both sides. What, what,
8: what, we only have about a minute left, but what do you hope your resignation will accomplish? Do you hope it will accomplish a change in policy or, or is it merely a matter, not merely, but a matter of your own ethical compass and that you can no longer do your job in the way that you think are it expected will, to?
12: Yeah, I, I don't think it will make an immediate change in policy. I think the U.S. is going to go ahead with its military support to Israel in, in the short term. Uh, what I hope it will do is, you know, first of all, obviously, remove me from that debate, which I, I found very difficult, but also, I hope, you know, show other colleagues, and I know that there are a lot of colleagues out there across the interagency and in the con- in Congress who, who feel similarly to me, and I hope it shows them that it's okay and possible to stand up and that there is a has been a huge outpouring of support, and, and I hope they see that and, and that it speaks to them to do the right thing as well, which Josh, I know so many of them will. <laughs> Josh Paul has just resigned
8: from his position as the State Department's Director of Congressional and Public Affairs in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Mr. Paul, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. This
0: is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, new federal rules may close loopholes that have allowed some big companies to avoid disclosing their greenhouse gas emissions. It's 720.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org.
13: Some parents are having a hard time finding the new pediatric COVID shot, especially for children under five. It's just an absolute logistical mess trying to
14: find information, and it was driving me insane.
13: Why many pharmacies and doctors don't have the COVID shot for kids, even if vaccines.gov says they do. On All Things Considered, from NPR News.
15: Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: A high near 66 today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows mostly cloudy and we'll have a low around 52. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a high near 66 with a chance of late afternoon showers. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at Schwab.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. With a little more than three months to go until the New Hampshire Republican primary, Donald Trump maintains a substantial lead in the race. That's despite facing more than 90 criminal charges in four separate criminal cases. At least a half dozen of Trump's Republican challengers are campaigning hard to replace him. That includes Trump's former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports that some polls put Haley in second place, giving her some buzz in the Granite State.
17: In the Republican presidential primary race, Randy Olver of Durham is a voter Republican candidates not named Trump are trying to win over. He's a lifelong Republican who doesn't support the former president. In fact, he voted for Biden in 2020, the first time he says he ever cast a ballot for a Democrat. Now he's hoping his party will reject Trump and back someone else.
4: I am not embracing a repeat of a Biden-Trump election, and I'm hoping that something uh,
7: dramatic happens to avoid that as our only choice.
17: Oliver is still undecided, but with China on the rise, an aggressive Russia on the march, and the risk of wider war in the Middle East following the attack on Israel by Hamas, he wants someone with foreign policy experience. So Oliver is leaning toward Nikki Haley the former governor of South Carolina, who served as ambassador to the U.N. And he's come here to Rochester to hear her pitch.
18: No one is gonna outwork me in this race. No one's gonna outsmart me in this race because we have a country to save.
17: Haley announced her presidential bid in February, the first Republican to challenge Trump and has been spending a lot of time in New Hampshire holding dozens of town halls like this one. In many ways, she's a staunch conservative, For example, as governor, Haley signed some of the most restrictive abortion measures ever passed in South Carolina, including a law to ban the procedure after 20 weeks. But now she calls for consensus on the issue and says a national abortion ban isn't feasible. And in the age of Trump's slash-and-burn approach to politics, Haley strikes a more moderate tone. For example, she wants to cut middle-class taxes and blames Republicans, even more than Democrats, for what she sees as runaway government spending.
18: The 2024 appropriations budget? Republicans put in $7.4 billion worth of pet projects and earmarks. Democrats put in $2.8 billion. Now you tell me who the big spenders are.
17: Haley calls that one of the hard truths Republicans need to hear. Another is that Republicans, most recently under Trump, have a terrible record in presidential elections.
18: Republicans have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. That's nothing to be proud of. We should want to win the majority of Americans.
17: At 51 and the daughter of immigrants from India, Haley argues that she represents a new generation of leadership that can win. She calls the U.S. Senate the most privileged nursing home in the country and doesn't miss a chance to take a swipe at the 80-year-old president, saying politicians over 75 should be required to undergo mental competency tests.
18: We all know 75-year-olds that can run circles around us. And then we know Joe Biden.
17: On foreign policy, Haley embraces a traditionally muscular Republican approach. She's staunchly pro Israel and says helping Ukraine defend itself against Russia's invasion is in America's national interest. That puts her at odds with other leading candidates in her party, including Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy, with whom she sparred in the first Republican debate in August.
9: So the
7: reality
18: make America is. Less of, you have no me, foreign policy experience and it shows. And you know
19: what? She knew she had to make something happen at that first debate. Because prior to that, I mean she was really treading water here.
17: Dante Scala is a professor of political science at UNH and a longtime observer of the New Hampshire primary. He says that debate helped Haley break out of a crowded Republican field and capture the interest of a certain segment of New Hampshire voters.
20: Who
19: are definitely
17: Republican.
19: They're not interested in voting for Joe
5: Biden, but they don't want Donald Trump.
17: People like Randy Alver, who we heard from earlier. Oliver was leaning toward Haley before the town hall in Rochester, and after seeing her, he says he likes her even more.
7: I think she does an excellent job of connecting with people, and I think the word has got to get out. My concern is right now there are so many Republican candidates splitting the non-Trump vote that if that continues through the primary season, we know what the outcome is going to be.
17: That's Haley's big challenge, according to Dante Scala, who says she has a lot going for her. She's a former governor with executive experience and a relatively moderate profile, compared to Trump at least, who offers an alternative to the former president's endless drama. But Scala says that might not be enough.
19: You know, in New Hampshire Republican presidential primaries, inevitably there emerges a moderate alternative, whether it's John McCain, John Huntsman, or John Kasich. So Haley has found that niche
17: But now comes the hard part for Haley, according to Scala, how to reach beyond moderates and make her case to other Republicans, a majority of whom, according to polls, are sticking with Trump, at least for now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: If you're looking to make new friends, come to City Space Monday for a speed friending night. We'll provide the structure you need to feel comfortable and make connections. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's morning edition, how misinformation on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter played into the chaos following an explosion at a Gaza hospital that killed hundreds of people. It's 729.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at UMassmed.edu slash together. Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at Goddardhouse.org and the Peabody Essex Museum presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is back from the Middle East following a day of meetings in Israel president is scheduled to address the nation tonight from the White House. He's expected to make his case for Congress to approve more U.S. military aid to Israel as it battles Hamas. During his visit to Tel Aviv, the president announced the U.S. would be sending $100 million worth of humanitarian aid to the West Bank and Gaza. The president told reporters he secured an agreement with Egypt to allow aid trucks to reach Gaza in the coming days.
4: This has been a very uh, blunt negotiation I've had, and uh, so we want to get as many of the trucks out as possible.
21: The president's primetime speech is also expected to address the war in Ukraine. House Republicans are expected to vote again today on Ohio Republican Jim Jordan to become speaker. Jordan received less GOP support in yesterday's second round of voting than he did in the initial vote, Still, Republican Tim Burchett of Tennessee says the House needs to keep at it.
4: I think we ought to stay here and just keep voting and just keep working on the problem and quit going home and doing these two-hour days. It's kind of ridiculous.
21: It's not clear who the GOP might turn to if they decide to move beyond Jordan. This is NPR News.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Public Schools has a new plan to educate its students with disabilities. The changes come after state and internal reviews found that the current system was not effective. Under the new plan, students with disabilities will be taught in general education classrooms. Schools will also be required to make sure they have the resources and staff to accommodate students. Fatal car crashes involving teen drivers are at a 10-year high in Massachusetts. AAA Northeast reports that last year, 49 people were killed in crashes involving drivers between ages 16 and 19. AAA spokesperson Mark Shieldrop says the increase is likely related to a number of factors, including speeding and distracted driving.
5: I think it speaks to an overall trend of a change in our driving culture in the past few years, and the pandemic really kind of highlighted some of that. Uh, We saw unbelievable amounts of speeding, and so we think that some of those behaviors that flared up during the pandemic really have kind of persisted.
0: The trend in Massachusetts mirrors similar issues nationwide. A new Harvard study finds that eating more than one serving of red meat a week may increase your risk of type 2 diabetes by as much as 50 percent. The study from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health followed about 200,000 people since 1980. Senior author Walter Willett says red meat contains a large amount of saturated fats that can ultimately lead to diabetes.
4: The best alternatives are plant protein sources like nuts, uh, beans, uh, soy products, and um, up to a modest amount of, uh, of dairy foods.
0: it says replacing red meat with plants in your diet will also help reduce carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson,
22: a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer
0: Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. The Bruins will try to extend their winning streak to three games tonight. They'll visit the San Jose Sharks. The Celtics will visit the Charlotte Hornets. Mostly clear skies today with highs in the mid-60s. Tonight, clouds move in and it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a mostly overcast day with highs back in the mid-60s. There's a chance of rain beginning in the afternoon. It's 54 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
8: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Families in Israel and elsewhere in the world are desperate for news of loved ones who were taken hostage by Hamas nearly two weeks ago. The International (laughs) Committee of the Red Cross is in Gaza. They are trying to help civilians with humanitarian assistance, of course. But they are also on standby, ready to help facilitate the release of hostages. And it's something they've done before as neutral mediators. Crystal Wells is a spokesperson for the ICRC in Geneva, and she's here with us to tell us more about that. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So thank you for coming. So does the ICRC have a realistic hope of being able to visit the hostages being held in Gaza? I want to start first by
23: saying that there are families, as you rightly said, who today are worried sick about their loved ones taken hostage. And what we really want is their families to know is that their loved ones are a top priority for us. Um, We've stated publicly, we've stated repeatedly uh, that the taking of hostages is prevented under international humanitarian law and that they must be released immediately. Now, in terms of your question about hopes and what we're doing, we are um, working to help the hostages in any way that we can. So we, as the International Committee of the Red Cross, We are speaking with Hamas. We are speaking with Israeli authorities and others on this issue. And all of this is in in an effort to be able to help them, like I said, in any way that we can. And some of the ways that we could help um, and what we do in other similar situations around the world is we can visit them to check on their health, for example, or to deliver personal medicines. We can make sure that, uh, that hostages and their families can share messages with one another. Um, and we've also expressed and would stand ready, of course, to, to facilitate any eventual release so that ultimately these people can go back home and be with their families. So the bottom line is we're, we're, working, we're working on this and it's a top priority for So us.
8: the question is, you are in touch with Hamas in some capacity, correct? the ICRC yes, is in touch right. Okay. I think it might be surprising for people to know as it was surprising to me to know that the Red Cross actually gave humanitarian law classes to Hamas some years ago. And I understand that you weren't personally there, you weren't physically there for that, but do you have any sense of whether Hamas has absorbed any of your teachings or the ICRC's instructions about the treatment of hostages? recognizing that hostage-taking is against international law to begin with, but you also offered some boundaries around the way hostages are supposed to be treated. Do you have any sense of whether Hamas has absorbed any of that?
23: Well, what I can say is that 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 um the teaching of Hamas around international humanitarian law is something that the ICRC does around the world. It's not unique to Hamas. Uh, we do it with other groups around the world as well as with state militaries. And then when there is a very active conflicts like we're seeing right now, the way in which the ICRC works is we engage directly with parties to the conflict. So Hamas here as as well as Israel to speak to them about their obligations of the rules of war. And we take a very discrete approach with this. We don't come out and disclose the content of those conversations. And it's not to be secretive for the sake of being secretive, but we take this discrete approach because we found through decades of experience that by having that, that space where we speak directly and confidentially with them, that it's the best way to, to influence change, to ultimately help the people we wanna help. And for us, our priorities would be to help civilians suffering in Gaza. And like I said, also to be helping uh, the situation with the hostages, both the hostages as well as their family members.
8: I do take your point that you feel that these, uh, if I may call it back-channel communications, are perhaps more productive than public pronouncements. But a ceasefire, for example, many people have noted that, you know, this bombing campaign that, that Israel is waging does have the potential of killing hostages as well. And I'm just wondering if you are in communication with the Israeli government about that.
23: Another, and thank you for this question, another top priority for us is around um, the need for humanitarian aid to get into Gaza and also having uh, the right conditions on the ground to be able to do that. So obviously what we've seen unfold in the last week and a half and what civilians have suffered is absolutely horrific. Um, We've seen people Um, Obviously, killed, injured, uh, millions of of people are affected and are going without their their basic needs being met. Um, So another top priority for us would be to to be looking at how we can get aid in. Um, But a a humanitarian ceasefire would be really important so that we're able to reach those in need and be able to scale up. A pause in the fighting now is essential. Mm
8: That is Crystal Wells. She's a spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross, and we reached her in Geneva. Crystal Wells, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us. We appreciate it.
23: Thank you so much
8: for having me.
9: California is going to make thousands of big companies report the risks they face from climate change. They'll also have to account for emissions that are raising global temperatures. The new disclosure rules will start kicking in about two years from now. Meanwhile, the U.S. government has yet to weigh in with its own climate rules.
6: Here's NPR's Michael Copley. Lots of companies tout their efforts to respond to climate change. The problem is it's hard to verify if the information is accurate or to compare information from different companies. That's where regulators at the Securities and Exchange Commission come in. Here's SEC Chair Gary Gensler.
4: Investors today are making investment decisions based
6: on climate risk disclosures. We're trying to bring some comparability. Gensler was talking at a recent congressional hearing about rules his agency proposed that would make public companies report their climate risks and account for their greenhouse gas pollution.
4: The proposal is really to capture the risks that investors want to understand.
6: California is racing ahead with its own regulations. But the SEC rules are an even bigger deal to businesses and climate activists. In part, that's because they think the federal requirements could shape how regulations evolve globally. That's made the SEC the target of intense lobbying. A lot of companies want the agency to pare back how much information they have to disclose.
17: We share their objective of wanting to inform investors or present information that consumers and other stakeholders want and need. But it's it's a matter of being judicious to get that right.
6: Aaron Padilla is an executive at the American Petroleum Institute. The group represents the U.S. oil and gas industry. Padilla says flooding investors with information about corporate emissions won't necessarily help them make better decisions.
17: Chair Gensler and the other commissioners in the SEC still have an opportunity to get this right.
6: Groups pushing for stronger regulations say investors need all the information they can get to protect their money. And more disclosures could have climate benefits. A recent study found making companies report their emissions could pressure them to cut their climate pollution. The SEC is expected to finalize its climate rules in the coming months. Michael Copley, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, Britain's prime minister is in Israel today as Western leaders make a show of unified support for Israel in its war against Hamas. And a reminder here that WBUR and NPR will have live coverage tonight at 8 as President Biden speaks to the nation about the attacks against Israel and Russia's war against Ukraine. It'll be mostly sunny and in the mid-60s today. Tonight, the clouds move back in and temperatures fall to the low 50s. Then a mostly cloudy Friday in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, Partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com
0: Pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly plans to hire twice as many people to work at its new Boston Research Center than previously estimated. Eli Lilly originally planned to have about 250 people working in the building, but leaders tell the Boston Globe that 500 scientists and researchers will soon work there. The center will focus on generic medicine. It's set to open in Fort Point next August. Casino slot attendants at Encore Boston Harbor and Everett are unionizing. Unite Here Local 26 says the workers were motivated by higher pay and job security. They'll automatically be covered under a contract ratified for other casino workers over the summer. Massachusetts is spending nearly $2 million on the development of driverless vehicles. It's part of a bigger effort focused on building the state's tech sector. Worcester Polytechnic Institute will lead the research program. The school will use the money to build new lab facilities to test the technologies. It's 744.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Doubleday, publisher of The Exchange by John Grisham. The hero of The Firm returns in a new sequel. The Exchange, after The Firm, is available now in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations including hunger relief organizations with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station,
8: this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're still putting together a full picture of just what caused that deadly explosion Tuesday at the Al-Ahli Arab Hospital in Gaza. But what we do know is that in the minutes and hours after the blast, unverified information, old videos, and bogus eyewitness accounts were spreading across social media, creating confusion and making it even harder to understand what happened. NPR Shannon Bond reports on misinformation and disinformation. And she's with us now to tell us more about the Shannon Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So
10: so what did we see happen in the immediate aftermath of the explosion? Well, almost right away, several media outlets initially reported it as being caused by an Israeli airstrike. And they attributed that to the Palestinian Health Ministry. But quickly, Israel's military denied that claim and said it was instead caused by a rocket launched by a Palestinian militant group. And yesterday, US officials came out and said their assessment was Israel was not responsible based on analysis of information they've not made public. On Tuesday, amid these competing claims, videos purported to show the attack started circulating online, but some of them turned out to not actually show the attack at all. But, you know, even before evidence was fully available or had been really fully assessed on social media, many people immediately jumped to the conclusion that either Hamas or Israel was responsible. We also saw people taking advantage of this chaos to push their own narratives, especially on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter.
8: No, I think people. a lot of people know that there have been a lot of changes to X um, under Elon Musk's ownership. Is there something about that platform that makes it particularly vulnerable to
10: this, especially after these changes? Well, it has become harder under his leadership to identify reliable information and credible sources. So for one example, there was an account that claimed to be an Al Jazeera journalist, and it claimed to have seen eyewitness evidence the hospital was hit by a Hamas rocket but it turned out this account was not a journalist at all. And actually, until recently, it had been posting about Pakistani cricket players. This account was taken down, but not before it had been amplified by accounts on X with large followings and many that carry these you know, verified check marks. And all that means now is this account has paid $8 a month for the subscription. They can get their posts boosted and even monetized on the platform. Well, meanwhile, many real journalists and news organizations don't have that signal of verification and that's just one of the things that's making it very hard to vet the quality of information on the platform.
8: So I mean I think it's fair to say that that that's not the only platform where it's hard to verify information, but what I think I hear you saying is that these changes under Musk have made it even harder. And it was it was hard before.
10: Must took it over. That's right. It was never, Twitter is never, you know, perfect in in that sort of way. All the experts I've talked to, it's become a lot more difficult to to seek out credible sources and and to get a better lens on what's going on. Do we know any more now about what
8: happened to the hospital?
10: Well, researchers and media organizations, including here at NPR, colleagues are analyzing video and images. But some I spoke to say that work itself is harder because of this flood of misleading and false content on social media. And this kind of work takes time. Right. We want answers immediately. And social media platforms are designed to deliver that even when there aren't yet answers to be had. And these things, this makes us vulnerable to manipulation by those who want to shape the narrative, as well as to unintentionally sharing bad information.
8: That's NPR Shannon Ron Shannon, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 8.20 on Wars Morning Edition, our week-long series, Spotlighting Local Artists, continues. Today, we profile Boston poet and performance artist Jija,
11: whose performances grow to include the audience. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone, for more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities, starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org.
19: I'm Scott Tong.
9: As the world watches the bloodshed in Israel and Gaza, communities of faith look for ways to explain the crisis and hope for a way out. We bring together a rabbi and an imam to find out how they're talking about the war and how they're supporting their communities. That's
19: here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israel says it'll allow humanitarian aid from Egypt into the Gaza Strip to help more than a million Palestinians forced out of their homes. President Biden plans to address the nation tonight on the Hamas attacks and Ukraine's fight against Russia. WBR will provide live coverage tonight at 8. The next House Speaker vote could happen today after Republican Jim Jordan lost his second vote yesterday. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
7: WBUR supporters include MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today.
0: Mostly clear skies today. Temperatures will rise to the mid-60s. Tonight they drop to the low 50s and it'll grow cloudy. That'll set the stage for a mostly overcast day tomorrow. It'll be back in the mid-60s. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston.
8: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Hey, no, and I'm Martinez. 27 years ago
9: last month, rapper Tupac Shakur died. Days earlier, he had been shot while he sat in a car at a red light near the Las Vegas Strip. In all that time, no charges had been filed. But now, Nevada prosecutors are charging a man named Dwayne Davis with Shakur's murder. Today, Davis will enter a plea in a Las Vegas courtroom. And joining us to discuss this case is NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siolka. So who is Dwayne
24: Davis? Well, Dwayne Davis is a former gang leader from Compton, California, and he allegedly was in the car that pulled up next to Tupac Shakur at this red light. And let's remember, A, Shakur wasn't alone in the car. The driver was the former CEO of the Death Row record label, Marion Suge Knight. And someone shot both of them. Shakur died of his injuries several days later, but Suge Knight survived. And a really interesting thing is that for years now, Dwayne Davis has said very publicly, that he was one of the people in that car where those shots came from
9: in the car but did he shoot the gun
24: so davis has said that it was his nephew orlando anderson who actually fired the gun whoever fired it prosecutors say now dwayne davis was the ringleader who oversaw tupac shakur's killing
9: Hmm. you know after all this time anastasia why do prosecutors think they can charge davis now
24: well, Dwayne Davis made those statements about him being in the car both in a book he wrote and in various interviews and he also told it to California police in a deal he proffered, but this is Nevada, so it's a totally different ball game and prosecutors feel that they have strong Accounts from eyewitnesses, not people in the car, but people who are on the scene, that will sway a jury. And I should note, A, Dwayne Davis and Suge Knight are the only ones of those six people between those two cars who are still alive.
9: Does that mean then Suge Knight is going to be called as a witness
20: here?
24: So, Suge Knight is now a few years into serving his own 28-year prison sentence in California for voluntary manslaughter. It's a totally different case. But when Dwayne Davis was arrested earlier this month, Knight told TMZ that he plans to refuse to testify in this trial for either side. Let's take a listen. You'll notice that Suge Knight calls Davis by his nickname, Keefe D.
4: Me and Keefe D. played on the same Powerwater football team. And whatever the circumstances, if he had an involvement with anything, if he didn't have any involvement with anything, who want to see I wouldn't wish somebody going to prison on my worst enemy.
9: This is a day that I think a lot of Tupac fans never thought would actually happen. And, you know, I'll bet a lot of Tupac fans probably are pretty skeptical that he'll get justice even after 27 years.
24: Oh, yeah, for sure. Even Tupac's late mother, Afeni Shakur, said in interviews she believed that the Las Vegas police never had any intention of solving the crime. She certainly wasn't the only one to think that. On the other hand, police have said for many years that no one would talk to them. And as, of course, we all know, Black men have not always been treated fairly by the criminal justice system, and there are complications here. There are allegations of gang ties involving Tupac Shakur. What strikes me, though, is that at this point, Tupac Shakur has been dead longer than he was alive, and certainly his family and loved ones, and for sure his fans, would really like to see some closure around his death.
9: That's NPR's Anastasia Siolkas. Thanks a lot.
24: Thanks for having me.
8: 25 years ago today, Cher released a song that would change the sound of pop music, and I know you've heard it. It's Do you Believe. In love, love? You heard that little warble in her voice? That was produced by AutoTune. That's a studio tool that digitally changes a singer's pitch. Cher's producers used it in a way that most people had never heard before.
12: Do you believe
8: and savvy producers took notice. Soon, that sound was popping up all over the place. Yeah, T-Pain became an early
9: ambassador for Auto-Tune after he heard it in a Jennifer Lopez remix.
17: And from then on,
14: I was like, I gotta find that effect. And once I found it, I I knew that was gonna
6: make me different because up until then, I had just been singing and singing, and, but I wanted something to make me
8: stand out, something to make me different. Auto-Tune to the rescue.
9: That certainly rescued him. T-Pain made it his signature sound and it landed him in the top 10 over and over in the 2000s. But he wants to emphasize that autotune wasn't why he had all those hits.
6: People thought that was making my songs and I'm like, no, you still got to make good songs. You can't throw on Michael Jordan's shoes and, and think that you're going to be the greatest basketball player of all
8: time. It's just not going to happen. And today, 25 years after Cher dropped Believe on Us, pop music is filled with that bit of studio trickery.
19: Andy Hildebrand invented
14: autotune back in
19: 1997,
8: but he originally thought it would just be used to make tiny corrections to a singer's pitch. Here he is from a 2004 interview.
20: A singer's first take is often their best. It's full of vitality and emotion. After the take, the producer will announce, that's great, but the second phrase was pitchy, let's do it again. What Autotune lets the, the producer do is fix the first take.
9: And here's the amazing thing. Hildebrand developed the original algorithm for a very different industry.
20: That computation allows oil companies to use seismic data to map subsurface strata to find oil.
9: Yeah, the same algorithm used to scan the earth for
8: oil deposits could be modified to scan a singer's voice for the right pitch. Earlier this year, Andy Hildebrand won a Grammy Award for his invention, recognizing his lasting contribution to pop music and, to a lesser extent, oil exploration.
0: Keep on top of the news all day. Get the WBUR app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Enjoy some good weather today before another rainy weekend. It'll be mostly sunny and in the 60s. Tonight the clouds start to move in and it falls to the low 50s. Friday will be mostly cloudy in the mid 60s with a chance of showers beginning in the afternoon. There's a good chance we'll see rain on Saturday. We may also see some showers on Sunday. Right now it's 55 degrees. In Boston, and we're coming up on
7: 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. Laurenholleran.com. The University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. Une.edu. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org.
18: I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH WBUR-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: President Biden says a deal he brokered between Israel and Egypt may allow desperately needed supplies into Gaza as soon as tomorrow. It's Thursday, October 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, thousands of protesters descended on the National Mall in D.C. yesterday, many of them Jews supporting Palestinians.
25: A core cool thing about Judaism is
22: questioning things. And so if we don't question what we're doing in Israel and we're just turning a blind eye to everything
0: also this hour the house is still without a speaker after Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio failed a second ballot a third vote could happen today and we profile Boston poet and artist Ziza who tries to build community through performances where anyone can take the mic this is a place for people to get
14: their voices their songs their affirmation their proverbs their prayers their reflections out
0: mostly sunny and mid-sixties today It's 8.01. Now the news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is set to make a national address tonight from the Oval Office. He's expected to propose a significant aid package to support Israel and its war against Hamas and further aid to Ukraine as it fights Russia's invasion. This comes as the president is also pledging $100 million in humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. The president and the U.S. intelligence community do not believe at this point Israel was responsible for a deadly explosion at a Gaza hospital this week. The blast killed hundreds of people. But as NPR's Greg Myrie reports, there's still a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the blast, and Israelis and Palestinians continue to blame each other. There are
5: photos, videos, and eyewitness accounts of the huge explosion at the Al-Ahli Arab Hospital, but there's not yet clarity on who's responsible. The blast dug a relatively small hole in the hospital's parking lot, and the hospital did not suffer structural damage. That suggests a smaller weapon was used. Israel says it was a rocket from a Palestinian faction that was directed at Israel, but misfired. Palestinians insist the blast was part of Israel's ongoing bombing campaign. President Biden says he believes the Israeli version, though U.S. officials say they're still gathering additional information. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
1: After two days and two ballots, Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan still doesn't have the votes to be elected Speaker of the House. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports his opponents say he'll lose more support if he pushes for a third vote today.
26: Republican resistance to Jordan's bid for Speaker appears to be hardening or even growing. It's been 16 days since California Representative Kevin McCarthy was ousted and the House is still frozen. It can't function until a Speaker is elected. Calls to give the temporary Speaker, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, powers to allow votes on bills are growing. McHenry says for now, his role is limited. Uh,
5: My role here is to be determined, but I've constructed that as narrowly as the rules say I should. And we can't transact business until we elect a speaker.
26: Jordan's GOP opponents warn tactics of his allies to pressure them for votes are dangerous. Two members who voted against Jordan say they received death threats. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News.
1: The National Hurricane Center is watching Hurricane Norma off Mexico's Pacific coast. Hurricane specialist John Cangelosi says Norma is powerful.
27: The Category 3 maximum winds in near 120 miles an hour. And it's to the south of the southern portion of the Baja California Peninsula. It's about 450 miles South southeast of Cabo San Lucas.
10: Meanwhile,
1: hurricane forecasters say tropical storm Tammy is in the Atlantic Ocean and could soon turn into a hurricane. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. A plan to pass new gun reform laws is now moving on to the Massachusetts Senate. The House voted overwhelmingly yesterday in favor of the reform package. The bill would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban, limit where guns can be carried, and crack down on unregistered so-called ghost guns. Representative Michael Day, who wrote the bill, says the measure would make the state safer.
17: Modernizing our firearm statutes is not an attack on anyone's rights. Far from it.
0: A dozen Democrats in the House voted against it, along with every Republican. State Representative Peter Durant was among the GOP members voting no.
9: We have a responsibility to keep people safe, but that doesn't mean we take away the freedoms and the rights enjoyed by those legal citizens.
0: Gun owners called the bill unconstitutional and vow to keep fighting it. Members of Massachusetts' All-Democratic congressional delegation are calling on the Department of Homeland Security to help address the increase in migrants arriving in the state. State officials met with the agency's secretary yesterday in Washington. Officials tell the Boston Globe they discussed ways to get to better get resources to migrants in the state. The meeting comes just days after Governor Healy announced that the state's shelter system is close to reaching its limit. The new repertory theater in Watertown is shutting down for good after 40 seasons. The regional theater company temporarily suspended operations in 2021 after large financial losses caused by the pandemic. More now from
2: WBUR's Amelia Mason. New Rep relaunched in 2022 with a smaller staff and a focus on diverse voices and new work. Leaders say audiences were returning, but the theater struggled to attract enough philanthropic funding. Chris Jones is the chair of the New Rep board.
5: They want you to be successful before they'll help you be successful. And that's sort of a catch-22 just in the funding game generally. And when you have, um, you know, a new direction and really a startup situation, you can't prove to people that you're a completely safe bet for their funding.
2: New Rep's demise comes amid a wave of theater closures across the country as companies face an altered arts landscape post-pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Amelia Mason.
0: A new veterans home is now open in Chelsea. The first 20 residents moved into the veterans home at Chelsea yesterday. The facility includes over 150 beds. The Healy administration says the home is part of a bigger goal to provide better long-term care for veterans in the state. It's 8.06.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener You, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at greeneru.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the San
0: Jose Sharks. The Bees won their first two games this season, heading into this four-city week-long road trip. Also tonight, the Celtics visit the Charlotte Hornets for an exhibition game. Mostly sunny today, it'll be in the mid to upper 60s. Mostly cloudy overnight and in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance for showers, it'll be in the 60s. It looks like rain for Saturday. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
7: WBUR supporters include Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters October 20th, rated R.
8: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
9: And i Martinez in Culver City, California. Western leaders are showing unified support of Israel in its war against Hamas.
8: Yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden visited Tel Aviv and met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet. This morning, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak landed in Israel. The visits follow nearly two weeks of war since Hamas launched a surprise attack that killed at least 1,400 people. Israel has retaliated with airstrikes in Gaza and has killed thousands more.
9: For more, we're joined by NPR's Zaya Batraoui in Jerusalem. So it was a whirlwind visit uh, for President Biden. What are the main takeaways?
28: Well, there are three. The first was affirming again his unwavering commitment to Israel's security. Biden met with grieving families and first responders in Tel Aviv. He acknowledged the pain here and said the scale of those October 7th attacks for a country the size of Israel was like 15 September 11th attacks. And then that leads really to the second takeaway, which is he also had words of caution for Israel. There are diverse opinions here about Israel's treatment of Palestinians and the war, but there's also widespread anger and a feeling that Israel's survival is dependent on wiping out Hamas. So President Biden said he understood there must be justice, but he also said, quote, while you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it.
4: After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes.
28: And he followed that by also saying that the vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. And the timing of all of this was less than 24 hours after a catastrophic blast at a hospital in Gaza where thousands of people were sheltering. The Palestinian health ministry says around 470 people were killed in that blast. Many, if not most, were children. Israel blames an errant militant rocket, but Palestinians and the rest of the Middle East, including the governments here, say it was Israel. And so the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza is on display every day that this war continues. And that leads to the third takeaway from Biden's visit. He got Israel's war cabinet and the prime minister to agree to let some humanitarian aid into Gaza.
9: Yeah, that's right. So when might that get in?
28: Biden says it could get in Friday. Israel bombed the roads leading to Gaza's border crossing with Egypt where a huge convoy of aid trucks is ready to go in. So those repairs on those roads could happen today. But Biden says it will only at most be 20 trucks at first and the UN will do the distribution inside Gaza. And he warned that if any of that goes to Hamas, the aid will stop. Israel also says this aid is only for Southern Gaza. So Gaza's biggest hospital and everyone in the North might not get any of this aid. And Israel did not say if fuel could enter. So that means hospital generator could still shut down. The only electricity for most people in Gaza now is coming from generators. I talked to Tasneem Ahl in Gaza City where uh, Israel told people to evacuate. She says there's nowhere else to go. The South in these so-called safe zones aren't safe either. NPR's producer down there saw kids being pulled from the rubble of their homes in recent days. But let's listen to what Ahel told me about how hard things are.
11: The last time that the drinking water is yesterday in the morning. Everything here is getting worse every day. Every day is harder than the last. There is no place here
28: in Gaza we can go.
9: You know, we keep saying Israel's expected ground invasion of Gaza. Now that uh, the president has come and gone, when might that happen?
28: Well, there are hundreds of thousands of reservists that have been called up at Israel's border. But in recent days, Israel has indicated there may or may not be a ground invasion. I think there's real fears this could lead to heavy losses among Israeli soldiers and intractable situation in Gaza, and that this could also draw other militant groups and engulf the region.
9: That's NPR's Ayah Batraoui in Jerusalem. Thank you.
28: Thank you. President Biden says he will
8: ask Congress to pass a quote-unquote unprecedented level of aid to Israel as the country continues its war with Hamas. The president is expected to propose bundling it together with funding for Ukraine and Taiwan, along with more money for security along the U.S.-Mexico border, in a package totaling about $100 billion. One person who's been pushing for just this kind of combined aid package is Senator Dan Sullivan, a Republican from Alaska. When I spoke with him earlier, I asked him why he wants to see the aid package it's structured that way.
20: We need to be strategic. We need to step back and recognize that these challenges are going to be with us for many years in terms of this new era of authoritarian aggression. Xi Jinping is very closely watching what's happening in Ukraine. Iran is working very closely with Russia in Ukraine. Iran is obviously behind all of the big national security challenges in the Middle East. And of course, when you have a wide open border and you have terrorists who are looking at the United States, and that's always still a threat, the ability to actually bring these together from my perspective makes sense both from a policy perspective, but also from the standpoint of broadening the support of members of Congress.
8: You've been a proponent of aid to Ukraine for some time now. Why do you think that some of your Republican colleagues are so skeptical? And if you've had these conversations with them, what do you say to them?
20: Well, look, one of the reasons that aid to Ukraine has been, you know, an increasingly contentious issue is the way in which the Biden administration has undertaken support to the Ukrainians. Literally every weapon system that the Ukrainians have needed from Stingers to HIMARS to F-16s the Biden administration was reluctant to give to the Ukrainians to help them win. Congress pressured the administration, and then eventually, literally months, almost years, they would do that. And there's also this issue of- I'm sorry, can of, I understand, I'm
8: sorry, can I interrupt you? You're saying that the administration sure. has been too slow to respond to Ukraine's requests. What does that have to do with people on your side of the aisle who say that they don't want to continue the aid at all?
20: Oh, I, I think they're 100% directly related because when you have significant aid that's going to, and it's not deployed in a rapid manner, you start to lose the confidence in the administration's ability to help the Ukrainians prevail. I think it's 100% connected. Do
8: you have any concern that tying these issues together jeopardizes funding for any of them?
20: Well, that's certainly not my intention. I'm hopeful that it actually broadens the support for members of Congress who are focused on different issues. And as you know, a lot of times in the Congress, things happen where you get a bill or a funding package that you don't agree with everything, but if you agree with a lot of it, it can broaden the support.
8: The Senate can move as it wishes, but the House cannot hold a vote on this because the House still does not have a speaker. Are you talking to your Republican colleagues about this?
20: Oh, I'm, I'm definitely talking to Republican and Democratic members of the House. I'm hopeful we're going to get a speaker here soon, but that has not limited me from reaching out to different House members who strongly care about national security issues, border issues. And I've been talking to a number of them over the last couple of weeks.
8: That is Senator Dan Sullivan. He's a Republican from Alaska. Senator Sullivan, thanks so much for talking to us about this.
9: Thanks very much, Michelle. HUNDREDS OF PROTESTERS MARCHING IN SUPPORT OF PALESTINIANS SAT DOWN YESTERDAY IN THE ROTUNDA OF A CONGRESSIONAL OFFICE BUILDING CHANTING AND SINGING. JEWISH VOICE FOR PEACE ORGANIZED THE EVENT. EARLIER IN THE DAY, THOUSANDS GATHERED ON THE NATIONAL MALL.
22: A core THING ABOUT JUDAISM IS QUESTIONING THINGS. AND SO IF WE DON'T QUESTION WHAT WE'RE DOING IN
8: ISRAEL, THEN we're just turning a blind eye to everything. Hal Barnett is 23 and a student at City College in New York. The march to the Rotunda was led by a group of rabbis and young people carrying a large banner that read, Our Blood is the Same Color. David Sperber is 79 and traveled from Rochester, New York.
7: I've been to Gaza as part of a humanitarian medical delegation, and I saw up close and personal what Israel has been doing to Gaza for the last 16 years. You know, I took an oath as a medical doctor, to support health and life. And so I'm out here doing this as a doctor, as a Jewish person.
9: 29-year-old Yasmin Batniji says the march helped her take her mind off her family who's been unreachable at Gaza for days.
24: The best thing that I can do right now is just being in the streets, and that's the only way that I think I can show up for my people and show up for what's right.
8: 39-year-old Alaa Wafa says women like her, who wear the hijab, are very visible in the U.S., and in recent days, she has felt less safe.
29: I worry about my child's safety and my family's safety. I worry about the safety also of our Jewish-American friends, who are also facing anti-Semitism.
8: She says her Palestinian grandmother is heartbroken by the current violence, but her own feelings are mixed.
29: I think people just need to remember the humanity of of society and stop doing the othering, divisive rhetoric and things like that. And so I truly believe this, that we're all one human family.
8: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. You're starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Republican Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio may try again today to gather the support needed to put him in the speaker's seat. Jordan failed to win a second ballot yesterday. It's 8:17. 17
13: WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Conductor Václav Lukes returns with a lively Beethoven program. October 27th and 29th, Handel and BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and in technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu slash met.
19: I'm Scott Tong.
9: As the world watches the bloodshed in Israel and Gaza, communities of faith look for ways to explain the crisis and hope for a way out. We bring together a rabbi and an imam to find out how they're talking about the war and how they're supporting their communities. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: A high near 66 today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows mostly cloudy and we'll have a low around 52. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high near 66 with a chance of late afternoon showers. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanstateJobLot.com. The Elliott Hotel a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, elliothotel.com, and Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession, salemstate.edu slash graduate.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shenoy. The Boston poet and performance artist Zija Azaglo goes by just one name, Zija. It takes a lot of stage presence to pull off a moniker that puts you in a category with Beyoncé, but it's a superpower Zija believes anyone can claim. Zija is one of ten artists making waves in Boston who we're introducing this week. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more on how Zija builds community through
2: poetry. It's nearing golden hour at Roxbury Heritage State Park. A band is set up on the brick terrace. Gija paces in front, microphone in hand. She invites the spectators scattered around the lawn to come up and take the mic. When no one volunteers, she coaxes them. But you
14: know, you don't have to come up here by yourself. Y'all can both come here together. Can we make some noise for these bodies coming
2: on stage, yes? Yes. The 30-year-old is an accomplished poet and performer. But Black Cotton Club is the thing Jija's best known for in Boston. She started the monthly jam session back in 2017, inspired by the Cotton Club, a Harlem nightclub where renowned Black musicians performed for all-white audiences in the era of Jim Crow.
14: I was like, well, why not sort of use this idea of the Cotton Club, but instead of it being... A Black performer performing to
2: an audience of white folks is Black performers really performing to themselves. Over time, that mission morphed into a kind of radical inclusiveness. Now, Black Cotton Club is a jam session where literally everyone is invited to take the mic not just poets and singers.
14: This isn't a place for just artists. This is a place for people to get their voices, their songs, their affirmation, their proverbs, their prayers,
2: their reflections out, and not feel the pressure of performing. This is classic G-Jaw. She has an uncanny ability to draw people in. But her comfort on stage didn't come easy. As a kid growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, she was really shy. I'm this lanky, dark-skinned First-generation
14: kid who stood out not because she wanted to, but because she she sort of, the way she physically appeared, like, just did stick out.
2: Her father, a preacher from Ghana, was sort of the opposite. Jija remembers being awed by the power he had to move people with his sermons, though she wasn't a fan of church herself. Instead, she started competing in local youth poetry slams, Performing allowed her to free herself from the feeling that she needed to be smaller, less visible, and through poetry, she could express her anger about it.
14: Time to get
2: this carries through in her work today. A politics of black liberation hums beneath Jija's warm stage presence.
14: Oh, speak, black girl. What is your reality?
8: Mm-hmm. I praise.
2: Recently, Jija found her way back to her church going roots. In 2021, she entered a Master of Divinity program at Boston University. Theology, in a very radical way, is making meaning of living. At BU, Jija developed a show called Reconfiguring God. Boston University assistant professor of New Testament, Dr. Shively Smith, helped conceive the project, which was inspired by the writings of 19th century Black women preachers. Half of them
24: were enslaved or formerly enslaved, at least their parents were enslaved, right? So
2: here they are reading the Bible in a way that says, no, we are made in the image of God. Jija wove the women's writings with music, poetry, and prayer. She staged the first performance in June at the Old North Church in Boston.
24: She came up with this idea of voicing Black women's spirituality from the places where these women would have likely occupied in the 19th century in
2: a church like Old North, which would have been in the rafters, away from the altar. For the performance, Jija placed the musicians in the church's balcony, high above the audience in the pews.
14: It just became like a a live experience of, like, how all of these voices are across different times, are saying very radical things, but are are saying it in collaboration with each other, including my own voice as well.
2: At the end of the hour-long piece, Jija delivered a blazing performance of Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman. Then the music picked up. Jija danced down the aisle, motioning for the audience to join in. Was it performance art or church? Maybe it didn't matter. By the end, the audience was on its feet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason.
0: Learn more about Gijon. Visit wbur.org. Later today, meet a world-renowned breakdancer from Boston who hopes to make his Olympic debut next year. Check out that story on All Things Considered, beginning today at 4 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
9: A stone's throw from the White House, the world's first major museum dedicated to women's artists reopened Saturday with revamped spaces and a collection that points to more than three decades of change and barriers.
3: While the discourse has progressed since the museum was founded, uh, gender and intersectional racial inequality remain pervasive in the art world.
9: The director of the National Museum of Women in the Arts, Susan Fisher-Sterling, unveiled the renovations that took two years and $70 million to complete. Our colleague Olivia Hampton got a preview.
29: As you walk in, you're greeted by this large chandelier by Joana Vasconcelos. It's ruby red and gold festooned with LED lighting that looks like Christmas lights. There's Murano glass. It's Absolutely kitschy. Most pieces in inaugural show, The Sky's the Limit, are also suspended overhead. They're big and bold, like Mariah Robertson's Nine, an abstract rush of color on photosensitive paper that stretches out 160 feet and folds over trapeze bars. Senior curator Katie Watts said the work
30: came all rolled up. And I thought, I, I'm sure it's cool, but I really don't have any idea what it looks like. And when we unfurled it, it just exceeded every expectation. I think of this as one of the sleepers in the show. Watt says Robertson's work with light and chemicals inspired her. I think about women who have to wear a hazmat suit to make the, the artworks that they create. That says a lot to me, and I love that sort of physicality that's a really big part of this artwork.
29: Another piece by India-born, New York-based Rina Banerjee fully embraces the more-is-more more aesthetic. In keeping with its maximalist persona, the title is so long that museum staff gave it a nickname, Lady of Commerce. I see an antique chandelier
30: from the Victorian era in India and then painted ostrich eggs over the top of this figure that's created from kind of a wooden dress form that is embellished with a birdcage
29: that goes on and on and on and on. Sandra Vicchio's architecture firm has transformed a former Masonic temple that didn't allow women members.
30: And you sort of flow from one space to the next. You also sort of see art talking to each other.
29: Upstairs, Going up. there's a sampling of the collection Third floor. that's grown from just 500 works when the museum first opened in 1987 to more than 6,000 pieces spanning five centuries.
30: and Here we are walking through the door. The first thing I wanted everyone to see is a gorgeous marble figure, a sculpture by the French artist Niki de Saint-Fal. This is a pregnant nana, and it's over five
29: feet tall. It weighs more than a ton. Other works by artists like Amy Sherald or Sonia Clark challenge racial stereotypes, while Graciela Iturbide honors Mexican indigenous culture, and Cindy Sherman manipulates themes of identity in her
30: photographs. This is a museum, it's also a megaphone. We're also about advocating for greater visibility, greater opportunity.
29: For women of all identities, Olivia Hampton, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We check in on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign. DeSantis is adjusting his approach in an attempt to catch up with frontrunner former President Donald Trump. It's
16: 8:29. Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit profit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including hunger relief organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says he secured an agreement with Egypt to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza and the West Bank. NPR's Aya Batraoui says the president announced the deal on his way back to the U.S. from Tel Aviv, where he spent yesterday meeting with Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu.
28: Biden says it could get in Friday. Israel bombed the roads leading to Gaza's border crossing with Egypt where a huge convoy of aid trucks is ready to go in. So those repairs on those roads could happen today. But Biden says it will only at most be 20 trucks at first, and the UN will do the distribution inside Gaza. And he warned that if any of that goes to Hamas, the aid will stop.
21: The president is scheduled to address the nation tonight about Israel and Hamas in a speech from the White House. He's expected to make the case for Congress to approve more military aid to Israel. Supporters of Ohio Republican Jim Jordan to be House Speaker say his GOP critics have offered no stronger alternative.
5: They would have been nominated and the, uh, the House of Representatives would have rallied around that individual.
21: That's Montana Republican Matt Rosendale. Jordan received less Republican support in yesterday's second round of voting than he did in the initial round on Monday. Still, the House is expected to vote again today on Jordan's nomination. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Boston Public Schools plans to overhaul its special education system. The district needs to make the changes as part of a state-mandated improvement plan. Under the new plan, students with disabilities and English language learners will be taught in general education classrooms. Schools will also be required to appoint a coordinator to oversee special education support systems. The Suffolk District Attorney is dropping charges against a man who spent nearly half a century in prison. The D.A. is dropping robbery and kidnapping charges against Tyrone Clark. Clark previously had a rape conviction dropped. He was released from prison in 2021 after decades behind bars. The D.A. tells the Boston Globe evidence from the case in 1973 was destroyed without being fully analyzed. With New Hampshire's Republican presidential primary a little more than three months away, Nikki Haley appears to be having a moment. Although former President Donald Trump remains the frontrunner, Haley has vaulted into second place in some polls. And as WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, she's creating a
17: good deal of buzz in the Granite State. Haley jumped into the race back in February. Since then, the former South Carolina governor, who served as U.N. ambassador, has practically taken up residence in New Hampshire, holding more than 40 town halls. In the past week, her campaign stops have included Nashua, Exeter, and Rochester.
18: No one is going to outwork me in this race. No one's going to outsmart me in this race because we have a country to save.
17: Haley is a staunch conservative, but in the age of Trump's slash-and-burn style of politics, she offers a more moderate profile, hoping to appeal to Republicans looking for an alternative to the former president. But her challenge is to reach beyond moderates and attract other Republicans, most of whom, according to polls, are sticking with Trump. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. It's 833.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash
0: WBUR. The Bruins will be in California tonight as they visit the San Jose Sharks. The Bees have started the new season with two straight wins. The Celtics will visit the Charlotte Hornets tonight for their final preseason game. The regular season begins next Wednesday. Red Sox right fielder Alex Verdugo is a finalist for a Golden Glove. Those are given to the best defensive players at each position. He's the only Boston player named as a finalist this season. Mostly clear skies today with highs in the mid-60s. Tonight, clouds move in and it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a mostly overcast day with highs back in the mid-60s. There's a chance of rain beginning in the afternoon. It's 55 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work, with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice easycater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
8: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And
9: I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's deja vu all over again in Washington. The House of Representatives again held a vote to elect a new speaker. And again, Republican nominee Jim Jordan failed to secure the
8: votes to get the gavel. And the Ohio congressman actually lost support on yesterday's second ballot. Twenty-two Republicans voted for someone else. That's up from 20 on Tuesday.
9: NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Uh, Deirdre, kind of like watching Groundhog Day, right? I mean, it kind (laughs) of feels that way. Um, Do you think anything will change today? Will the House uh, finally elect a speaker?
26: We could see that same movie again. I mean, a third (laughs) ballot for speaker could happen later today. But right now, no Republican has the 217 votes needed to be elected speaker. There's no sign that any of the 22 members in that GOP group that voted against Jordan are going to change their votes. One of them, Arkansas Republican Steve Womack, predicted a third ballot would get, quote, a lot worse
9: for Jordan. And, you know, there's been some real blowback to the strategy of Jim Jordan's allies trying to wear people down and and get them to vote for Jordan.
26: It's really backfired. And even last night, Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks from Iowa, who supported Jordan on the first ballot but voted against him on the second, denounced the tactic from Jordan's allies and actually shouted out fellow members of Congress denouncing them. She said she received death threats and said, one thing I cannot stomach or support is a bully. Jordan condemned the threats, but some think he's not doing enough. A lot of these holdouts say this pressure campaign from right-wing media targeting lawmakers, flooding their offices with calls. Is a reason why the resistance is hardening and perhaps expanding?
9: Are talks getting any more serious about Democrats maybe working with Republicans in a kind of a a power sharing agreement?
26: There are some who are pushing this idea that Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, he's the speaker pro tem who's presiding over the election, could get new authority to do things like bring up bills to avoid a shutdown later, to approve aid to Israel. A growing group of Republicans say it's important now to have a temporary speaker, at least for some period of time, so the House can function. McHenry insists he's focused on getting a Republican majority to elect a Republican speaker, but he seemed to crack the door open to his role may be changing.
5: Obviously, this is unprecedented, what we're dealing with. Uh, My role here is to be determined, but I've constructed that as narrowly as the rules say I should. And we can't transact business until we elect a speaker.
26: But any resolution to do this would have to pass the House with Democratic support. The minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, says he's open, but the details would still have to be worked out in terms of how long McHenry could serve and what he could do.
9: Now, I know President Biden is going to address the nation from the Oval Office tonight, going to ask for money for wars in Ukraine and Israel. What does this dysfunction in the House, Deirdre, mean for Congress approving those requests?
26: I mean, the hurdle's just that much higher. Without a speaker, nothing can happen. There is broad bipartisan support for approving money for Israel and for Ukraine. Senate leaders from both parties want to tie them together. But Jim Jordan and a lot of other House Republicans voted against any more money for Ukraine. That's a big reason why some Republicans who support aid continuing or running out are more openly talking about this idea of installing a temporary speaker.
9: That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks for keeping up with this saga, Deirdre. Thanks. In the Middle East, there's an ongoing dispute over who was responsible for that deadly explosion at the Gaza City Hospital on Tuesday.
8: That's right, more information about the incident is emerging, but it's far from conclusive and the Israelis and Palestinians are still blaming each other. Here to break it down, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg
9: Myrie. Okay, the explosion, Greg, how much do we know about what happened and what caused it?
5: Well, there are photos, videos, eyewitness accounts. Uh, Me and my NPR colleagues have been going through all the available evidence, but what we don't have yet is clarity. Uh, Photos show an explosion dug a relatively small hole in the concrete in the parking lot of the Ahli Arab Hospital. A couple cars were destroyed. Uh, Fire burned several down to the metal frame. Um, The hospital has broken windows, pockmarked walls, and some missing roof tiles. But the hospital didn't suffer any real structural damage. Uh, A Palestinian doctor there at the time of the explosion spoke to NPR and described a horrific scene with many people killed just outside the hospital, but he said no one was killed inside the hospital, just a few people wounded. You said outside the hospital. Why were there so many people outside of the hospital? Well, you know, of course, the hospital is full of patients wounded in the war, so relatives and friends were present, but many other Gazans, several thousand, came to the hospital grounds hoping it would be a safe place to shelter. A large group was gathered in the, in the courtyard at the time of the blast, according to w- multiple witnesses there.
9: Okay, so all the people who died were outside of the hospital. Does any of this provide
5: any clues to who may have fired this weapon? Well, nothing for certain, uh, but weapons experts say that the limited size of the blast in the parking lot suggested a smaller weapon was used. So that could be a rocket fired by the Palestinians. Also, videos show a large fireball at the moment of impact, which could be rocket fuel that ignited. Uh, The Israelis say a militant Palestinian faction, Islamic Jihad, not Hamas, fired 10 rockets toward Israel, they say one of those rockets misfired and crashed into the hospital grounds and and that's the cause of all these casualties. And Palestinians, I would assume, are not going with that version, right? Absolutely. They say Israel has been striking almost every corner of Gaza with relentless airstrikes that have killed many civilians, and that this was just part of that bombing campaign. Now, we should note that Israel airstrikes are often conducted with very powerful bombs and missiles, and they tend to leave very large craters that can take down a large section of a building, and in some cases, an entire building itself. But Israel also has smaller weapons in its arsenal, So it's not yet possible to rule in or rule out all the various possibilities here.
9: Yeah. And during his visit to Israel yesterday, President Biden said that he supported the Israeli version of events. So what reason, Greg, did he give?
5: Right. The president said that this was based on information he received from the Pentagon, uh, but neither he nor the Pentagon provided any details. Uh, President Biden said he, uh, again, thought it was an errant Palestinian rocket. And at the White House, the National Security Council said in a brief statement that it appeared Israel was not responsible based on the intelligence available at this point, but they stressed that they were still looking for further information.
9: All right. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks for sorting this out. Sure thing, A. Coming up on All Things Considered, women and girls around the world often end up doing most of the caregiving in a family, usually without pay. A recent estimate says if women were paid minimum wage for this work, they would add nearly $11 trillion to the global economy. Now, In Bogota, Colombia, the mayor decided it was time to do something about it. To hear this story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker or reliable radio. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the pressure kids face these days to do well in school and asks whether achievement is worth the toxic stress it can cause. Some great fall weather today. It'll be mostly sunny and in the mid-60s. Tonight, the clouds move back in and temperatures fall to the low 50s, then a mostly cloudy Friday in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 56 degrees in Boston.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com MOS.
0: State lawmakers are considering a plan to limit how businesses can use artificial intelligence in the workplace. The bill would require employers to explain why and how they intend to use machine learning tools to monitor productivity. Workers would also have access to the data collected about them. Amazon is teaming up with MIT to study the use and impact of robots in the workplace. The tech giant gave the school an undisclosed amount of money for the research. The effort will include studies on how employees can safely interact with robots and a poll on the public's attitude about that kind of automation. South Boston is getting its first cannabis dispensary. Native Sun will celebrate its grand opening in the neighborhood next week. The Boston Business Journal reports the company already has locations in Hudson and North Attleboro. It's 844. We're funded by you,
22: our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. At NPR, we don't just sit in the
28: host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Layla Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt, to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org
8: cars.
9: This is Morning Edition from NPR News, I'm Amy Martinez.
8: And I'm Michelle Martin. As Florida Governor Ron DeSantis watches his presidential bid falter, he's going for broke in Iowa in a last-ditch effort to catch Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. Steve Bosquet of member station WFSU in Tallahassee reports on how DeSantis is trying to retool the way he's presenting himself to voters yet again.
31: For months, DeSantis ridiculed mainstream news outlets as corporate legacy media, But now he needs their attention, even if it means answering questions about his floundering campaign as he did recently on CNBC.
21: In Florida, I'm a leader. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not running a soap opera down here. I make promises to people and then I use the authority that I have
31: and I work with the legislature to deliver the promises
21: and so the results speak for themselves.
31: To appeal to Trump's base. DeSantis pushed a culture war agenda and overwhelmingly won re-election in 2022. But over time, he talked less about woke ideology, as he called it, his so-called don't-say-gay law, and other topics that tend to turn off moderate voters. Lately, he's focused on trying to prove he's the most electable Republican in the field. Political scientist Aubrey Jewett at the University of Central Florida says DeSantis retooled his message when his campaign team realized his poll numbers among national voters were slipping.
5: Part of the reset that DeSantis and his campaign team have tried to do is to focus on the issues that the average voter says they do care about, like immigration and the economy, particularly inflation.
31: But DeSantis's critics say it may be too late for a makeover. Here's Fentress Driscoll, a Tampa legislator who heads the Democratic caucus in the Florida House.
8: He has failed to capitalize on his election win to raise his profile nationally, and he's doing worse in the polls than before he started. Meanwhile, he's got a seemingly endless stream of negative stories.
31: The latest flashpoint came over the weekend in Iowa when he said the U.S. should not accept refugees from Gaza because they are, quote, anti-Semitic. His comments on the war between Hamas and Israel have taken on a hard-line approach as he tries to funnel support from Trump. This week, the former president promoted a plan that would expand his earlier travel ban to exclude people from what he calls terror-plagued places. That attempt to be both like Trump and in contrast to him overshadows DeSantis's campaign. Democratic Florida Congressman Jared Moskowitz knows DeSantis well. He worked for the governor as director of emergency management throughout the COVID-19 crisis. Moskowitz sees DeSantis's problems as unavoidable.
6: Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. Him being the leader of the Republican Party, is it's clear that it's not to be
5: questioned. And quite frankly, I don't think there's anyone who's going to be able to take him down.
31: Most polls show Trump leading DeSantis by 30 points or more. Adding to DeSantis's challenges, the latest campaign spending reports show he took in just over $11 million in the past quarter, but also spent nearly as much. As he sprints toward early state nominating contests next year, he'll have to juggle his campaign schedule with his duties as governor. For NPR News, I'm Steve Bosquet in Tallahassee.
8: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the fighting between Israel and Hamas, plus an international look at the search for a new U.S. House Speaker. Republican Jim Jordan has failed twice to get the votes he needs. It's eight forty-nine.
11: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com.
13: Member FDIC. Some parents are having a hard time finding the new pediatric COVID shot, especially for children under five. It's just an absolute
14: logistical mess trying to find information, and it was driving me insane.
13: Why many pharmacies and doctors don't have the COVID shot for kids, even if vaccines.gov says they do. On All Things Considered, from NPR News.
19: Listen again after four today on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. President Biden will speak tonight on the Hamas attacks and the war in Ukraine. Listen for live special coverage at 8 on WBUR. The Prime Minister of Britain is in Israel today as the West makes an effort to show unified support following the attacks. And Russian officials are proposing regular security talks with North Korea and China to prepare for what they call U.S.-led military threats. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Music
22: Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story you can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
0: Mostly clear skies and mid-60s today. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston.
15: Time to Netflix and Bill. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshor, in for David Brancaccio.
19: Remember Netflix's password crackdown? Yeah, well, it worked. Password piggybackers emerged from the shadows in droves and signed up for their own accounts, helping bring Netflix 9 million new subscribers in just three months. That is triple the number of people who signed up last year at the same time. And now that it's got them, Netflix is raising prices. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here
27: with the details. Hi, Nova. Good morning, Sabri.
19: This sounds kind of like a big turnaround when you think that, you know, in early 2022, Netflix had
27: actually lost more than a million subscribers. Yeah, it is a big turnaround. For a while there, post-pandemic, it appeared that we'd reached peak subscriptions. Netflix added 36 million in 2020, then lost, as you mentioned, subscribers. But now it's growing again, and the number is higher than expected. And Netflix thinks it'll keep adding more subscribers for a few more quarters as it continues to crack down on password sharing.
19: Yeah, but it's also raising prices. Are they
27: not concerned that this is going to irritate customers and it might lose some? well you know i don't think they are at the moment they don't seem to be they seem to think that they have enough price options various tiers of membership for example netflix pointed out that 30 percent of new subscribers opted for its cheapest plan that's seven dollars a month which includes commercials it's not changing the price on that it is adding three dollars a month to its most expensive plan and increasing its lowest priced ad free tier and if more people sign up for advertising that might actually help netflix it wants to build up that part of its business All right, Marketplaces Nova Sappho, thank you so much. You got it.
19: Netflix stock, by the way, is up 15% in pre market trading. Let's see how the rest of the market is doing. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down a full percent. Dow and SP futures are up less than a tenth of a percent. Dow futures up 21 points. NASDAQ futures also up three tenths percent. And the yield on the 10 year treasury is 4.930
15: percent marketplace morning report is supported by charles schwab schwab believes every investor deserves to work with the firm they can count on that's why schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients plus professional answers and 24 7 live help learn more at schwab.com and by how we survive Climate change is dire, but it does not have to be world-ending. New season of How We Survive from Marketplace, available wherever you get your podcasts.
19: Parents want their kids to do well in school and in life. But school can be a lot for a kid, more than a lot. It can be a pressure cooker for students. How many AP classes can you load up on? Add on a tutor and an SAT prep if you can afford it. How many extracurricular activities can you possibly fit in a day? But is this achievement-centered approach the only way to go? What about students who do not thrive under pressure from schools and parents? Jennifer Brahini Wallace is the author of Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. She spoke with my Marketplace colleague, Nancy Marshall Ginzer.
25: I will tell you, I am down in the trenches with you. I have twin teenage boys, and I have noticed there is a lot going on these days for kids. I mean, the pressure to succeed academically is higher than I've ever seen. Why is there so much pressure on kids right now, and how might parents actually be adding to it?
13: Oh, to be clear, I have three teenagers myself, so I'm right there in the trenches with you. And I've been noticing over the years just how different my children's childhood was from my own. The story that really makes the most sense to me is the changing economic story from when you or I were growing up. So when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable. There was slack in the system. So a parent could be relatively assured, even with a child having some setbacks, that they'd be able to replicate their childhoods, if not do even better than their own parents did. I think you talked to
25: hundreds of kids, Jennifer, who said their sense of self-worth was based on academics. They only felt like they were truly loved when they got an A.
13: That is the unfortunate narrative that I heard from way too many kids. Kids today are under a tremendous amount of pressure to achieve, and not just achieve, but the bar to achieve just seems to be getting higher and higher in all areas of their life. And there's no one person to blame. I mean, these pressures come from peers, from their peers' parents, from social media, from the wider culture that tells us only certain people are valued and matter in this world. What I hear from the parents is not so much that they wanna get their kids into Harvard or Yale. This is really an issue that's affecting all parents, particularly those in the top 25% of household incomes. Parents feel really tasked with getting their kids into a, quote, good school so that that could act as a kind of life vest in a sea of economic uncertainty.
25: There are some kids, though, who managed to still thrive in this pressure cooker environment. Tell me about them and how are they succeeding and what are their
13: parents doing differently? Yeah, so I wanted to, as you say, look at who were the kids who were doing well despite the pressures. And it boils down to this idea of mattering. What I found and what I've implemented in my own parenting at home is is the importance of teaching our kids their value inherently for who they are away from their achievements, but also, importantly, to depend on them and rely on them to add value back to their family, to their friends, to their communities. Kids who felt like they were valued and were dependent on to add value had a kind of protective shield. It didn't mean they weren't anxious and depressed, but Mattering acted like a kind of buoy that lifted them up. lastly, Jennifer, this is a question for all parents. When you do push, when do you push, and when do you hold back? Yeah, so instead of focusing on shiny outcomes, like a specific grade, instead focus on how the work gets done. Parents need to make the assumption that kids want to do well. So if their child isn't doing well, get curious not furious about what is getting in the way we've been speaking with jennifer Breheny
25: wallace her book never enough when achievement culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it is out now you can learn more about it on our website marketplace.org thank you jennifer
13: thank you so much for having me
19: and that was marketplace's nancy marshall genser there in new york i'm sabri benishore with the marketplace morning report From APM, American Public Media.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Brown University's Master's in Technology Leadership. Preparing strategic leaders with innovative skills. Professional.brown.edu. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice. Advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com.
28: I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app
20: or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.